This evening we look together to the truths of God's Word relating to baptism as they're summarized in Article 34 of our Belgic Confession. You can find that on page 86. We're going to read that portion of Article 34 that we find on page 86, saving the remaining uh, half of that article, a little less than half, uh, for next time. But before we read that, I'd like to read with you two passages. The first is very brief. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the passage that we call the Great Commission. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had ministered to His disciples for some 40 days. And He then met them on a mountain in Galilee. And uh, verse 18 says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's His command to us, and it's also His promise to us. Well, the disciples obeyed. And we find in Acts chapter 2, that they were in Jerusalem waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit when that gift was suddenly given to them. At Pentecost, a time when Jerusalem was filled with Jews who had come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And they began proclaiming the Gospel, proclaiming Christ in all of their languages. It amazed the people. It drew a great crowd. And there we hear Peter speaking to the people who were confused about what was happening. And we're going to pick up his speech at verse 22, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor you will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he, was both, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says to himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my foot, your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received this word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone, who, anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. Well, summarizing that account of baptism and what we read in Matthew 28 and many other passages, Article 34 of our confession leads us to confess that we believe and confess that Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law, has made an end by the shedding of his blood of all other sheddings of blood which men could or would make as a propitiation or a satisfaction for sin. And that having, he, having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, has instituted the sacrament of baptism instead thereof by which we are received into the church of God and separated from all other people and strange religions that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and ensign we bear and which serves also as a testimony to us that he will forever be our gracious God and Father. Therefore he has commanded all those who are his to be baptized with pure water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, thereby signifying to us that as water washes away the filth of the body when poured upon it and is seen on the body of the baptized when sprinkled upon him, so does the blood of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit internally sprinkle the soul, cleanse it from its sins and regenerate us from children of wrath unto children of God. Not that this is effected by the external water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, that is the devil, and to enter into the spiritual land of Canaan. The ministers therefore on their part administer the sacrament and that which is visible, but our Lord gives that which is signified by the sacrament, namely the gifts and the invisible grace washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of His fatherly goodness, putting on us the new man and putting off the old man with all of his deeds. We believe, therefore, that every man who is earnestly desirous or earnestly studious of obtaining life eternal ought to be baptized but once with this only baptism without ever repeating the same, since we cannot be born twice. Neither does this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us, but also throughout the whole course of our life. Amen. Beloved people of God in Christ, I once read a story about King Louis IX of France. Among the European kings of the Middle Ages, Louis was indeed a standout. 
He inherited his throne in the midst of all kinds of upheaval and unrest. And yet Louis was able to bring about peace in France primarily by means of his just and upright Christian morality. He was known as an accomplished warrior who personally led his people into battle. His spiritual life was filled with prayer and fasting and a great love of sermons. And he was known regularly to join with the monks in chanting the Psalms of David. Louis was quite sympathetic to those who suffered. In fact, he was known for having built hospitals throughout France. And it was reputed that he fed a hundred of the poor in his kingdom every day at his own table. Well, this great Christian king, known throughout Europe for his accomplishments and for his mercy, he once was asked what he considered to be the greatest day of his life. Was it the day that he married the beautiful and noble king, or Queen Margaret? Was it his coronation as king at the tender age of twelve? Might it be the day in which he and his soldiers were released by a Muslim army that had taken them captive? Or perhaps the day that he completed his, his pilgrimage to Nazareth? But Lewis answered that it was none of these. Instead, without hesitation, he answered, it was the day of my baptism. Because on that day, God assured me of my salvation. Now doubtless, we could quibble with some of Lewis's theology. He lived, after all, prior to the Reformation. But his recognition of the value of his baptism and what that meant for his identity and for his relationship to God, that should humble and inspire each one of us. Because you see, God calls all of us to strive for an appreciation of our baptism and all that it signifies. And it was for that reason that God led our forefathers to include Article 34 in our Confession of Faith. Here we learn that Christ gave baptism to us as a sacrament of promises fulfilled. And that's what we're going to consider briefly this evening. That God gave us, Christ gave us baptism as a sacrament of promises fulfilled. But of course, if we're to understand and appreciate the promises of baptism, the first thing we need to understand is the radical nature of those promises. And so that's our first point. Our confession <clears throat> begins by reminding us that, that baptism is a sacrament of completion. Jesus came and completed the deliverance which had been promised to God's people. Up to this point, the sacrament of entrance into God's people was a sacrament that pointed forward to the shedding of blood, that pointed forward to the birth of one who would come, that pointed forward to a deliverance that had not yet been accomplished. And so Jesus, when he had completed that deliverance and demonstrated himself to be the one for whom they were looking, he abolished that forward-looking sacrament, that blood-letting sacrament, and instituted in its place baptism. Baptism that reminds us of what he has accomplished. It's a sacrament that ushers us into the church. You see, circumcision, that's, that's what its role was. If you wanted to have a relationship with God, if you wanted to be identified with the people of God before Christ came, 
Well, there were a number of things that you would be expected to do. You would be expected to begin uh, studying and learning the Word of God, particularly the books of Moses, that you could understand the acts of God in the past. You would begin uh, being tutored in the ways of God's people, what it means to live as those who are set apart to God and whose lives are to be marked as holy. But above all else, you could not be recognized as a Jew, as an Israelite, as one of the covenant people of God until you received the sacrament of circumcision, if you were a man. And not only you, but all of the males within your household had to receive this sacrament of circumcision. That marked your formal entrance. Up until that point, you might be considered a God-fearer, you might be considered a, a righteous Gentile, but you were not one of the people of God. You had no assurance of your place among the people of God until you received that sign and seal. And from that point on, you were a son of Abraham. Just as true as any other. Well, that's what baptism was given to us to be. No longer a sacrament looking forward, but now a sacrament looking back at what has been accomplished, but having that same significance of saying that now you are one of the people of God. You have entered in to the church, which means you have departed from all that identified you in the past. In the words of 1 Peter 2, we have become a holy nation, His own special people. God has set apart the people of the church. He's given us a different source of hope and a new basis for comfort than anyone else in this world has that is outside of the church. He has given us a new purpose. He's given us a new calling. In every way, the people who are baptized into Christ are different. They're set apart. How different? How different is light from darkness? How different is holiness from defilement? How different is life from death? That's how different we're made to be. Scripture tells us in Colossians 2 that in Christ we have put off the sinful nature that destroyed us and that was condemning us. And we have been raised, we've been resurrected to new life in Christ. We have been made completely different and baptism Baptism proclaims that difference. It says we now wholly belong to Him whose mark we bear. Because we've been baptized, we can know we don't belong to the world. We don't belong to the people around us. We belong to Christ who caused His name to be set upon us, the name of the triune God with the waters of baptism. That's why Jesus, when He commanded His disciples to disciple all the nations... If you look at that passage, it's grammatically fascinating. You guys know me, I, I like grammar. But if you, if you diagram the sentence out in verses 19 through the beginning of 20, you find that there's one main verb, make disciples. That's the main verb. And the rest of the verbs in that sentence are participles, they're like... Helping verbs. They describe the way that you make disciples. Going. They can't just stay put. They have to go out and meet the people of the world. Baptizing them. That's how they bring them into the kingdom. How they make them part of the people. And then teaching them to observe all that He has commanded. That, that teaching part. That uh, helping them to understand how we live as those who belong to the Lord. That comes throughout life. That's a lifelong practice. 
But they can't truly be disciples until they're baptized into Christ, until they're set apart from all others and made part of the kingdom. What does the apostle tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says. And by that, he doesn't mean that some of you weren't. He's simply saying, I didn't name all the sins. But you were all identified by those sins that would keep you out of the kingdom, that would exclude you from true life, eternal life, life with the Lord. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Notice the first uh, verb, you were washed. Which is exactly what baptism signifies. And that's what ushers us into the kingdom and says you are entirely different. As members of the church, you need to ask yourself, what is my identity? Strip everything else away. When it comes right down to brass tacks, what is your identity? Are you Americans? No. Are you Caucasians? No. Are you Republicans or Democrats? No. Are you Iowans or veterans, husbands or wives, parents or students or teachers, employers or managers? No. When it comes right down to the very end, when you strip away all the stuff that's less essential, the most essential thing that you are is you are a disciple. You are a Christian. Galatians 3 tells us what we are. He says you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amazing grace. He has taken us as unworthy as we are, as foolish as we were, as broken and unworthy. And He has made us to be the children of God. And yet he's just. Our God is just. Baptism replaces circumcision and circumcision was a bloody sacrament for a reason. Hebrews 9 verse 22 explains why. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. Until blood is spilled to cover it, the sin remains. And the blood of livestock won't suffice. Baptism could replace circumcision. Water could replace blood only because the ultimate sacrifice of blood was poured out when Christ poured out His blood on the cross. What did Peter command the crowd at Pentecost when he commanded them to be baptized? He said, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Because it's by faith in Christ that our sins are washed away through His blood. And that's what baptism shows us. That's what it displays. So today, He calls us to be baptized in order to teach us and to assure us that just as water washes away the filth of the body, so His blood washes away the defilement from our very souls. By the blood of Christ, we refer to the entirety of His suffering. All the pain and the the torment, all of the physical destruction, but also the spiritual torment. Everything He endured so that we might escape is now ours. And more than that, that He promises the Holy Spirit which gives us faith 
The Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ. The Holy Spirit who promises always to be with us throughout the course of our discipleship. All of this He promises to us in baptism. And that is who you are. Do you ever look at yourself, young people, in the mirror and ask, who am I? When we're young, we, we have to figure out, who am I? Who do I identify with? What is my self-image? Do I identify with this group or with that group? When, when people see me, what do I want them to see? Baptism says you should want them to see Christ. You should want them to see that you are a child of God. You should want them to see that you have been forgiven, that you have been set apart, that you have been loved, that you've been given eternal life. That is your ultimate identity as a person. Do you ever feel unworthy of the Lord? Look to your baptism. Christ has promised you that just as concretely as you believe that water will wash away the dirt from your body, and you all do. You go out, you get filthy working and and sweating and, and toiling, and you come back, and what do you do? You get in the shower so the water can wash away the dirt. You know it will work. And so too the blood of Christ we can know will work to wash away our sins. It's not about how unworthy we are. It's about how absolutely worthy Christ is. Look at your baptism. That's who you are. That's your confidence. That's your identity. But it doesn't work automatically. One of the worst errors ever to plague the church was the idea that we were automatically forgiven, automatically grafted into Christ if we were physically baptized. That leads to the sin of presumption. And that's not what baptism was meant for. And so the second thing we see here is the spiritual application of its promises. See, baptism is significant Baptism has meaning only because of what Jesus accomplished. Unless he had been sinless and perfect, unless he had obeyed God with absolute perfection, unless he had gone all the way to the cross as God called him to do, and had suffered the fullness of God's wrath for our sin, unless he had raised up from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, unless he did all of that, then what we see in baptism would have meant nothing. Baptism always points us to Jesus. And so we don't trust in the baptism. That's just a sign that points us to Him. We trust in Him. And unless we trust in Jesus, the baptism means nothing. Well, it means something. It means that you knew better. It means that you had every reason to understand what Jesus did and to trust in Him. But until you trust in the one who's signified by that water, until you trust in the one who says, I've set you apart, until you rest your faith in the one who promised that he would give you faith and that he would always be with you, until you do that, the baptism can only condemn you. But as soon as you trust in Christ, that blood covers your sin, that righteousness replaces your wickedness. And you have been delivered from death into life. We heard Peter declare. In Acts chapter 2. 
This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. The resurrection of Jesus testifies He completed all of the work. He did everything that was necessary. And therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Therefore, we can repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of our sin, for the forgiveness, for the reconciliation, looking to Him because we know He did it all. He completed it all. There's nothing left to be done. So what that means, brothers and sisters, is that we don't trust in the baptism. We don't trust in our church membership. We don't trust that everything will be just fine because of the family we were born into. No. Children, every one of you, every one of you has to take hold of the baptism you were given. For most of you, that happened before you were born, or before you, you could remember, right? You were just a few days old. But your parents have attested to you. They've told you it happened. And you trust them. You know it happened. That means the promises came to you. But now you have to trust Jesus. You have to believe that He will forgive your sin, that He will make you a child of God, that He will help you to put off your sin, that He will help you to lead the life of a disciple. And then believing Him, you have to start doing it. You see, that's how we receive the reality that baptism is. It signifies. We ought to identify ourselves according to our baptism. But that means looking to Christ and trusting in Him. Never rest in the physical. Always trust in what it signifies, which is Christ. And yet even as we trust in the atonement of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, even as we rest passively in the spiritual reality of our baptism, our baptism also calls us to respond. You see, even as it testifies to the cleansing from sin, it also testifies to the holiness that should now characterize us. Even as baptism reminds us that we have died in Christ, it also reminds us that we now live in Christ. Our form for baptism, all of the forms, especially the, the first two forms. We usually use form three, but, but the first two forms speak of this even more clearly. They remind us, if I can get to them, that baptism... places us under an obligation to live in obedience to God. Why? Because covenants have two sides. God established us in covenant. We talked about this in, in our upper grade catechism class today, that, that baptism signifies that we're in the covenant. And the covenant of grace, God did everything there, right? And yet there's still an obligation for us. It's an obligation that God fulfills in us, and yet it's still an obligation for us. And that obligation is faith. And if we have faith, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, if the Holy Spirit works that faith in us, He's also going to work sanctification in us. He's going to begin turning us away from sin. He's going to begin causing us to desire to follow God, to desire to live according to His commands, to desire to conform ourselves to Him out of love. And that's what those who are in the covenant in truth, those who, who embrace the covenant by faith, that's what they're going to do. And so baptism testifies to us not only that we've been forgiven, not only that we have that new identity, but also that we now are living a life 
of discipleship, a life of transformation, the life of the children of God. The first command he calls us to obey is the command to be baptized. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. But once you've been baptized, once you've been baptized, then the life of discipleship really begins. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, says Jesus. And that's what we find them doing in the church at Pentecost, right? Thousands of these Jews... Believing Peter, they repent, they're baptized for the remission of their sins. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 that one day. But then they didn't just go their way and live the lives they had been living, no. They continued steadfastly, daily, growing in their discipleship. What did that look like? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means they were studying, they were learning, they were trying to figure out what the church taught. And the older ones in the church, understand there were only 12 apostles, right? Now very soon, they would begin augmenting their numbers with elders and ministers. We know that from the scriptures, but, but at the start, those 12 were quite overworked. And so those who were already disciples began teaching those who were newly disciples. They began teaching them in the apostles' doctrine. Folks, this is catechizing. They were teaching them what the church believes, teaching them what God had revealed. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. They were spending time with one another because the way we learn from each other is by spending time with each other, by watching each other, by seeing how a Christian lives, how a Christian behaves. One of the most effective ways to teach someone a new trade is to put him with someone working alongside of someone who has been working in that trade for a long time. We call that an apprenticeship. And that's what discipleship is meant to be. It's an apprenticeship into the Christian life. We walk alongside of, we live alongside of those who have walked with Christ for many years. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread. That speaks in this context of the sacraments. They they partook of the Lord's Supper. They were strengthened by that sign and seal of nourishment in Christ and also in prayers. They were continually seeking the help of the Lord, praying individually, praying together, seeking God's help for each individual and for the church as a whole and for the community in which they lived. Learning together to rely upon the Lord. Folks, this is what we need. If we are to see the fruit of our baptism flourish, that's the discipleship life. That's the baptismal life that we're called to cultivate. We together need to be gathered as we're doing right now. I, I praise the Lord for each one of you gathered here this evening. When so many of our country in our country are, are focused on worldly things and entertainment, and the Lord has drawn you together to hear His Word and to learn what it means to be one of His. And we need to cultivate a love for that. And not just here on Sunday, but also in one another's homes during the week as we engage in Bible study. Is there a Bible study that would, that would pique your interest, that would help you to grow and to stretch? Join it. Take part in it. Interact in that Bible study. And if there's not one, then ask your elder, where can I find one? And dear elders, if you don't know, start one. We ought to be studying the Bible together so that those who are older and more mature can learn 
or can teach those who are younger and less mature. And that those who are older and more mature might not grow complacent in their faith, but might continue digging into God's Word so that they can answer those questions. We need to be growing in the doctrine. We need to be growing in our fellowship. Spend time with one another. Work on opening your home to other Christians. Not just the ones you've always known, the ones you've always hung out with. Find somebody who's never been in your house and invite them over for dinner or for snacks or for games, or just to visit, just to get to know them. Because God has given each one with gifts that all the rest need. But we won't know that if we don't get to know each other and get to know those gifts and get to know those personalities and find out how we can serve one another. We need to cherish the sacraments, obviously. Next week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that as a matter of course, but truly prepare your heart for that. And if you have guests coming, make sure they show up early so that they can meet with the elders and so that they can prepare their hearts. And if you have children, make sure they understand what we're doing and why we're doing it so that they, even though they don't partake physically, can partake spiritually by trusting in that which they see. And also in the prayers. Even as we don't just study the Bible corporately, but we read the Bible individually throughout the week. So we should be praying both corporately as a church, but also individually as families and as lone Christians. Growing together and individually in our knowledge of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit that He's promised to us. You see, baptism, it's, it's more than just an assurance. It is that. But it goes way beyond that. This is a sacrament of promise that shows you who you are and what's been done for you. That truly empowers you as you receive its promises by faith and that knits you together with all of those who like you have been baptized. So let us each resolve to use our baptism to its fullest effect. Let us each resolve to seek to apply that baptism in all its implications in our lives, young and old. And may God thus mature us, strengthen us, grow us so that we can go and make disciples of those around us as those whom the Lord has matured in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so very merciful. We don't deserve any of this and yet you have given it freely, graciously. May you be glorified as this your people come to recognize the reality of their identity in Christ and seek to cultivate through faith in Christ, seek to cultivate the discipleship you have given to them. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.